Hi, this is Max Tanev, and you're listening to Brain Spike Back. Today's episode is the second installment in my four-part mini-series on the new era of psychedelics. In this episode, I spoke to two guests, the first of which wanted to keep his identity under wraps, so we stuck to first names. His name is Rob, and we had a really interesting discussion about his own experience with microdosing and the numerous benefits he's gotten from it, including better mental health and career performance. We also touch on the potential downsides of microdosing and how it's becoming more acceptable in the wider community. With my second guest, clinical biologist and blogger Gaurav Dubey, we dive deep into how he became interested in exploring psychedelics and some of the exciting research that's being done around microdosing. This conversation took some really insightful turns, especially on the changing tide of psychedelics and how people should think about the value of full-blown mystical experiences versus microdosing and why microdosing has become so popular within the tech community. Hope you enjoy. This episode is brought to you by Publicize, a digital PR company that grows businesses' online presence. And for a limited time only, exclusive to Brainspike Back listeners, you can receive an SEO assessment as part of your package for any tier of service at no extra charge with this special promotion. To find out more, visit publicize.co slash BBB. My guest today has spent the last four years working with various medicines, including ayahuasca, psilocybin, cambo, LSD, 4-ACO-DMT, MDMA, and ketamine, with a majority of this work having been done with psilocybin. He has been hosting his own psilocybin retreats for the last three years, and in this time has also been experimenting with microdosing psilocybin, and more recently, LSD. His name is Rob. Rob, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So I'd like to start off by asking you if you can tell me a little bit about how you started experimenting and eventually working with these psychedelic compounds. Yeah, I was... uh first invited uh, a few years ago by a friend to attend a what we would call a journey, and that word will change as, as we go on here, but uh, in the mountains by Banff, Banff, Alberta, more to help with the cooking, uh, but he said, I'm welcome to participate if I felt like it, and uh, as the night went on, I, I did feel like it, I have a, somewhat of a curious nature, and so that's how it all started, and you know, the environment that we were in, there was a facilitator that came out from New York, actually. Uh, and the group was, there was uh, the Calgary town planner, there was two doctors, a lawyer. Most of us were kind of older than 30, and that's kind of where I first got introduced to some some compounds. And then just from then on, I got uh, curious as to what was being used, and then just did my own homework, and then off it went. You know, my journey took me to uh, Peru uh, to sit with shamans there. Uh, that was more driven through a traumatic timeline through a six-year divorce so that that was uh you know something where my kids said go go <laughs> so off off i went and found myself there and those modalities there are are quite strong uh you know as compared to some here but yeah and then i just uh, it's kind of found my way to hosting my own journeys i just had people come out because i live out in the woods here uh, in, in alberta and yeah just kind of went from there Wow, that's interesting, especially that you kind of entered this territory with a very therapeutic mindset. I think a lot of people, or perhaps the majority of people that experience psychedelics for the first time, it's more of a recreational kind of use where, you know, people are taking LSD or mushrooms when they're very young and they're going out into nature and enjoying it that way, which is certainly, in my experience, like a great way to enjoy those compounds. But I think when we're getting down to the 
genuine uses of them. Having that certain setting and that kind of guidance through the experience is definitely very important to make sure that you maximize getting what you need out of the psychedelics. Yeah, I agree. And it still happens. I mean, a large portion of the people that I work with, they'll have their own story where they first came to encounter the product that we use. And it was this experience. And a lot of people use, you know, the term a bad trip. However, I believe they're all just experiences. I don't believe in a bad trip per se as much as it's just that's the experience that you're meant to have. And when they explain the environment that they used it in, you kind of go, yeah, well, that's going to happen when you use them either in association with too much alcohol or the energy in the space is off, um, you know, not with respect or intention. And, you know, as I had, I I hosted some, some journeys from the same style as I started with at my place and then i just had people ask me hey you know you got a pretty cool environment out here do you mind if we you know come back out and just hang out and i said yes what we did is we used psilocybin on its own not the stuff that the people from new york would bring and i found that when used under the right conditions you know i work with people a week ahead of time and also a lot of work after uh, with the right music the right playlists you know, the right attention, it's a whole different ball game than when, if you took the same amount that we used and just even went for a walk in the woods is different. But the way that, you know, this product works is I can take the same amount that I give you one time and we use it exactly the same the next time and you'll have a different experience. It's just, you know, our life experiences come into play where we are at that point in time, either, you know, we do it in the winter or the summer. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I find it's been the same with my experiences with ayahuasca, that if you're spending Monday to Friday in the office and not really thinking about the ceremony at all through the week, and then you're going for a weekend of retreats and drinking ayahuasca, having not mentally prepared for it. And, you know, it's it's people talk about the dietary kind of detox that, that you should do before you drink ayahuasca, but it also needs to be somewhat of a, um, like a mental stimulation detox in terms of all of the the media that we're consuming and all the screens that we're looking at as well. So I find that, yeah, that's certainly the case with some of the psychedelics that I have had experiences with as well. But just to get back onto the topic of of the podcast today, I want to ask you about your experiences with microdosing, um, psilocybin, and then later on with LSD. When and how did you start microdosing? Uh, It would have been probably uh, approximately two years ago. It came about through conversation with a community that I'm started to kind of get to know in in Calgary. Again, not necessarily curiosity as much as the medicinal side of it. Um, You know, I I saw the benefits that I gained from being in Peru and I kind of didn't want them to end because sometimes we can get back into, you know, the mainstream of life and, you know, forget, you know, the work we've done. So I started to do my homework on it. Um, I, you know, there's lots of information on online. I assessed what benefit it could have for me and my business and my family. And um, and that's kind of where it all started was about two nine years ago. You know, I don't have a lot of anxiety. I don't have a lot of depression. But my nature, what I found was the kind of person I am and the kind of job that I do sometimes don't always match up. I'm If I have to sit at a desk for more than an hour, it can be a struggle. <laughs> so it helped me focus. It helped me get through some heavier tasks that I would have to have at my desk. And once I found that benefit, I, you know, I just started to 
experiment with different programs, meaning there's the James Fadiman is the doctor that kind of started this all a bit. You know, his program is, you know, every fourth day. So day one would be a Monday, Tuesday off, Wednesday a flush day, and then a Thursday you go again. Uh, so I started with that, and then I've just experimented with my own programs. That's really interesting, especially that you have found sort of a therapeutic benefit in terms of mental health, but then also a benefit in terms of cognitive function and how it's helped you to focus better when you're working throughout the week. So interestingly that you mention about productivity, because I feel like microdosing is right now gaining a lot of attention in wider communities that perhaps might not have been traditionally interested in psychedelics, such as the tech world. Do you think that that promise of higher productivity levels is linked to this trend that's sweeping the tech world right now of microdosing? Well, I'm, I mean, A, I'm not in the tech world, so I'm not sure if I can answer that fully. Having said that, part of my job, I do have to tend to focus and I'm in front of a screen and I have to deal with that. I, I believe so. Now, you know, it, it might be sweeping the tech world, but it is also sweeping a larger part of the community because of some, you know, exposure that has happened through some books and through some online stuff. And also you've got two two different compounds that I've worked with, psilocybin and the LSD. They're different in how they'll help you get through the, those programs. So the LSD side I haven't used as much uh, from a microdosing standpoint, but I have found that in the short time, I have used the two. The LSD side is more of a cognitive head gain where it doesn't affect the body as much, at least for me, where the psilocybin side, I get not only the cognitive side, um, but also the mind-body connection side. So it helps me kind of get into my body, you know, a bit more of a zen kind of effect, uh, you know, and the offshoot being at work with a lot of staff, I connect better. I'm a little more patient. I'm not as busy at my desk. I'll stop doing what I'm doing and look them in the eye. And yes, I know I should probably be doing this, you know, as it is, but you know, this process has helped me even do that even better because sometimes we don't hear what, you know, our staff is saying. They're telling us things, but we just hear what they're saying. We don't really hear or pay attention. And so it's helped me actually be a better boss. That's really interesting. And I think that that element of mindfulness that it's helping you achieve is really important because, like you said, you know, as a professional and dealing with going to work every day and having to have these professional relationships, we want to make sure that, that we are really listening to them and making sure that we are going through our weeks in a mindful way. And there's only so, I mean, there's obviously meditation techniques and, and stuff like that that we can use to achieve these kinds of um, these kind of mindful states but if psilocybin is able to help you with that then that's great I do want to ask though have you found that there have been any drawbacks in microdosing or you've just found that it's been an entirely positive experience that's a great question one thing I would say first Megalan if I could is it's not a kind of a catch-all it doesn't you know it doesn't help my day and that's the only thing that I kind of rely on I just want to you know make that clear that it is it should be part and parcel of a, you know, a combined program, you know, be it, you know, food, mindfulness at home. I think you brought up that point. But, you know, the drawbacks really, I mean, are currently its availability. The status, you know, still not. I mean, there's some movement around some laws in some states. I'm obviously coming from Canada, so it's still against the law here. And then there's this kind of the social stigma. Um, it's still fairly underground to a certain degree. 
even though you know you have mentioned that push in the tech world and that push has really been coming a long time and you know it's it's grown because of popular books that have come out you know on the topic but each time i go to a meeting each month in, in calgary most of the questions are on microdosing and really the feeling is the nervousness around am i going to be able to work how long is it going to last can i drive home you know people are really starting to still kind of learn the process and learn what it can do yeah and i think at the moment kind of people's perceptions of psychedelics are undergoing quite a fundamental change i mean we've seen writers like michael pollan come out and write books about psychedelics and how much therapeutic value they actually have and i think that's part of a a changing landscape and I personally I find it really exciting that a lot of people are now opening their eyes to the benefits of psychedelics whether microdosed or you know whether taken in larger doses um, there's certainly a place for this within the medical community and in providing therapy to people that need it so yeah I think microdosing as part of a wider a wider trend of psych psychedelic acceptance is um, it's really exciting right now and it's definitely true when you talk about it being part and parcel of a, a wider effort to you know become more mindful and better certain aspects of yourself I think that both with microdosing and with general psychedelic therapy that's certainly the case that it's not a fix-all that you take it and then you're magically able to kind of make all these improvements without putting in the work yourself it's something that requires a lot of personal effort too so I'm just going to finish up with my last question, which is what advice do you have for people that are interested in trying out microdosing? Well, first, from a health standpoint, uh, as we kind of work in this field, we, you know, it's not for everyone, unfortunately. So, you know, if there's a history of mental illness or schizophrenia or something like that, I would you know, definitely be cautious around that side. But also, you know, there's um, so much information that you can access now. The body of work that's being built on these kind of modalities you can find online. You know, do your homework. Don't jump in. Of course, know where you're going to source the product from. Be very cautious. Don't kind of run headlong into this. And there's no one right way. I mean, there is James Fadiman even talked about when he talked about his way of scheduling. And I saw him at a conference. He goes, that was just the first one I said. And then everyone has kind of taken that as that way. There are people that I've met who, because of their anxiety or whatever they have, they'll take 0.2 of something every day, five days a week, and then two days off. And then that works for them. Um, so people may need to assess their environment and kind of regulate as they feel fit. Um, one other thing, too, is journal. Journaling is, is so important. I have found not just in the work I do with people at treat, but also just with people, just so you can look back and go, yeah, I've seen some progress. Because sometimes, you know, we don't always kind of recognize the change. And, and then just, again, to end on, do your homework. There's a lot of books out there now. There's Arrowhead, Reddit. Third Wave is a great, you know, avenue online. Maps is a really good uh, website. So... Yeah. Okay, perfect. Yeah, those are all really good pieces of advice. So, yeah, thank you so much, Rob. And, um, yeah, thanks for coming on the podcast. You're welcome. Gaurav Dubey is a dynamic clinical biologist and scientific blogger with a passion for science and traveling the world. Gaurav has earned his Bachelor of Science in Biology and a Bachelor of Arts in Philosophy from the University of Miami and his Master's in Biotechnology from Rush University. 
He is currently traveling through central Mexico to continue his journey of self-healing and self-actualization while running his startup evidence-based branding firm, Karmic, where he is dedicated to taking science off the shelf and empowering readers by making science more accessible to everyone. Gaurav, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Magdalena. It's a, it's a pleasure, a privilege, and an honor. I look forward to this conversation. Me too. We're very happy to have you on as well. Um, so to get started, I want to ask you first, like, how did you first become interested in psychedelics and more specifically microdosing psychedelics? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, as you know, those are two very different things as we're going to get into. And growing up as a kid, I grew up in a very kind of sheltered environment when it came to drugs and substances of that nature. And I really didn't have my first experience with cannabis or any mind-altering substance until college. And it's interesting with the opioid epidemic in America, it was more through things like trauma. And, you know, I had a motorcycle accident 10 years ago um, that then spiraled into too many pain pills and that whole story that started to lead me into wanting to find a way out. And that way out required me to have to learn more about myself and my nature and realize that the drugs I was using, for instance, were just me self-medicating and trying to escape. And the interesting thing about psychedelics where I started to learn about them is that they're kind of the opposite of escaping. You really can't run from yourself and you really can't run from what is. If anything, you're somewhat forced to go deeper. Um, and so being at the University of Miami, I had my share of hippie friends that were into like taking acid and smoking weed and going to concerts or whatever. Um, my first time I smoked weed, I had a terrible experience. I was very paranoid and I was very terrified of everything that was, that was happening. But I was also kind of intrigued as to how, how a substance could kind of bring my intention inward um, and bring to the surface certain neuroses or certain, maybe not defects of character, but elements of my character that I'm not always perceptive of. So it was over time, and and I, I had become dependent on opiates through a back injury that I want to say it was Ibogaine that really was one of the most powerful psychedelics that really threw me into the, the world of like ayahuasca and master plants like peyote and using them as a form of, of healing. Um, iboga, uh, the tabernathi iboga bush is indigenous to West Africa and is pretty notable for eliminating opiate withdrawal, which is, or at least acute withdrawal, which is pretty remarkable in a time like today where so many people find themselves stuck on these pills because of not wanting to deal with that that illness and that, and that sickness. Um, but kind of like we talked a little bit about before we started recording the show, there's no magic bullet either, you know? So it's a very nuanced conversation and experience. And to me, like when I tried LSD for the first time or when I tried mushrooms, I just noticed they had this really profoundly positive effect on me. And I never felt, I was never chasing after them. If anything, unlike oh, do, do I want to take a Vicodin and feel better? Like five, 10 years ago, that was a no-brainer question. Like, of course I do. And taking two would make me feel better. Do I want to eat an eighth of mushrooms right now? That's something I would have to think about for quite some time. And the answer would probably be no, because I don't know if I'd be ready to, to take that dive, you know? And so part of it was 
fear, I think, of the unknown and also that and that intrigue. And then, you know, getting immersed in the literature of Terence McKenna, Ardris Huxley, and, and people that have really shaped the field uh, and seeing how it has impacted everything from culture and music to science and technology. I mean, I'm a biologist and uh, one of the most fascinating things to me was learning about how PCR was invented. Polymerase chain reaction is one of the most revolutionizing inventions of biology and it was a surfer biologist from california who i think it was mushrooms and i would i would hope he wasn't driving the car but he looked in the rearview mirror and he he saw these trees kind of doing this thing where they were coming together and then they were going apart again and then they were zipping up back together again and he said well what if i did that to dna what if i heated it up and I caused, caused them to get unzipped and then I put in primers and I cooled it down and then we could amplify DNA. Well, that's how crime scene technology and forensic evidence is even a field of study today is because of one guy who's tripping on mushrooms one day and he looked at some trees like that is the power that these that these compounds have and it was kind of a slow but uh and at first traumatic because i mean it was through trauma and through pain that kind of led me to want to learn more and and go deeper you know and so that's kind of what brought me to learning about psychedelics but then when we get into microdosing you know my friend who has uh, been kind enough to let me record at his, his place here today um brought up a really cool point the other day and microdosing is almost more advanced you know than the full dose experience of psychedelics because instead of bringing on something different you're amplifying what is in this moment and you're able to be in that subtlety and that subperceptive um non-phenomenological kind of state and be able to appreciate it more and be able to garner more knowledge and more wisdom from that. So sorry, that was such a long answer to your question. Uh, I couldn't think of a shorter way though to really talk about what got me what got me into it. There were a lot of barriers in the sense of uh, social stigma, legal barriers, obviously, you know, that kind of kept me out, but those weren't keeping me out of taking pain medicine or, or abusing or alcohol or other other drugs or things of that nature that are more socially acceptable uh whereas the war on drugs and the nixon era has really stymied what probably could have been 40 or more years of great research uh that i hope we are going to get into now yeah absolutely no uh great answer <laughs> <laughs> great answer so just kind of like touching on what you said your friend mentioned um, mm -hmm. how they see microdosing as a more advanced way to ingest these compounds and mm -hmm. reap the benefits that they can offer. How do you see the benefits of microdosing as different and not necessarily better, but how do they work differently to, for example, the benefits that could come from having one full-blown eight-hour, 10, 12-hour mystical experience on something like psilocybin or LSD or you know, an ayahuasca ceremony or any of those other plant medicines that you mentioned, like what is the difference between foregoing that mystical experience and everything that comes with it for mm -hmm. something in a significantly smaller quantity that a lot of people don't even, well, I mean, the, I guess the point is that you don't even notice the psychoactive effect when you take it. The point is that it creates like long-term, um, you know, 
<laughs> I think I fudged that point. <laughs> no, no, that. it's okay. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's the beauty of a podcast. But you're right. I think the idea is since we don't have long-term like fMRI or, or neuron, like we haven't been able to study the structural changes to to neurology of microdosing over a long time, but still people are reporting them. So, so you're right. Actually, there is a very good chance that there are these morphological and neurological changes taking place in the brain through the repeated subperceptive dosing schedule of psychedelics. And, and they are unique and they are very different um, from what one would gain out of a, a full-blown dose of something like psilocybin. And it really depends what you're going for. Now, I think Silicon Valley was probably one of the, one of the first... I guess, vehicles to really bring microdosing into the, the limelight and the mainstream. The work floor, I mean, you know, I, I don't know if it was NPR or if it was a Gimlet podcast. I think it was Gimlet uh, startup maybe uh, where Alex was, you know, he microdosed on the podcast. And people talk about increased energy and improved focus and cognitive benefits, increased creativity. You know, it talks about how it, when I say it, I'm talking about, so there's a, a 2019 systemic, systematic review um, about microdosing. All the PubMed literature that is out on microdosing is all very, very recent, and there are no empirical studies. There are empirical studies on, on high doses, um, but they have yet to do that on a trial of people that have been given a microdose. But a lot of the effects believed most likely to change were unrelated to the observed pattern of reported outcomes. So what's really important about that is the, so the abstract ends by saying the study, and I should note the authors are, uh, this is a PLOS study. So Vince Polito, Polito um, and his team. So it says, despite the reported lack of acute effects of microdosing, proponents claim a wide variety of psychological and social benefits from regular microdosing, including increases in vitality, creativity, productivity, social ability, focus, analytical thinking, positive mood, memory, mindfulness, and general well-being. Microdosing is thus a curious phenomenon. On the one hand, advocates deny experiencing the alterations in consciousness that characterize typical doses, yet claim significant psychological benefits from regular use. It's not until we are able to do these studies that we're able to find out is how much of these shifts, now I'm talking about full dose um, experience, you know, suppose someone takes a full dose of LSD and then isn't an alcoholic anymore. You know, I, if, I, if I am quoting this correctly, and I believe I am, in the 60s and 70s when Dr. Leary, Timothy Leary, who's famous for his LSD research, was using LSD in high doses on alcoholics and addicts, their success rate was 50 to 60%. Now, for someone that struggled with addiction for the last 10 years of their life, that's amazing, okay? There are no treatments out today that come anywhere close to those numbers. Nowhere. Absolutely none. That's how dramatic his results were at the time. Um, so now the question becomes, is it because they're having some crazy mystical experience and they meet God or they become self-actualized or whatever? Or is that just what's happening and that's what they're perceiving? And are there pharmacological changes taking place in the brain that's actually contributing to now their changed behavior or is it some combination of the two you know 
comparing that to microdosing will be a really good help in the sense of a control, right? Because like what's happening to the brain, to these people that are ingesting very low doses of active psychedelics and consistently, you know, and um, the general idea behind microdosing, I believe is something like one day on two days off um, because the nature of these compounds are such that, uh, they become markedly less efficacious if you try to take them consistently. And that's really good, too, because it makes them inherently non-addictive, you know. And so if I remember back to your original question, I'm not sure if I do right now, but uh, I, I, I think what's going to come out of the benefits of what people are reporting from microdosing uh, and when we do the actual studies on it is we're going to learn more about what kind of mental faculties and pathways and mechanisms are involved in creativity. What makes someone creative? What makes someone focus? How can we increase creativity and focus versus someone that has really, really bad PTSD? Like microdosing might not be enough for them. You know, it might be better than nothing, but there's some really great literature out now uh, on using MDMA for PTSD for people that have gone into complete remission. There was a soldier, there was a, the guy that started MAPS, I was watching the, the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Sciences or studies, uh, was telling me a story about a soldier who had really bad PTSD and he was addicted to opiates and he would have uh, night terrors. And he, all he did is go in for, I think, two, he might have skipped the third MDMA session with a therapist. And by the end, he stopped taking his pain pills. He like, moved to Zimbabwe and he helps orphans. And he's so happy now, right? I don't know if microdosing is enough to give someone that drastic of an upheaval and an uprooting from their old ways. But to be able to kind of be more grateful and be more at peace and more in awe of the everyday and the every moment, because those moments when we're in the medicine, you know, like a lot of shamans and stuff say, when we're engaged with the spirit of whatever psychedelic or plant, in those moments, yeah, they're powerful, but sometimes it can be kind of like seeing a motivational speaker, unfortunately. It's like, oh, you're super motivated. But the thing is, motivation never lasts. It has to be disciplined, right? That's the only thing that's consistent. Motivation fades. It's just the nature of, of motivation. So the cool thing about microdosing and, and why I, I, I believe um, and what I got out of my friend telling me about how that's even more advanced is because now you're not you're not doing it for like the inspiration. You're, you're, you're doing it to appreciate the subtlety in what's around you and in, in, in what's inside you. And so these benefits that are reported of microdosing, uh, the creativity, the improved mood, uh, reduced anxiety, improved focus, improved energy, those are all really great. And especially when we consider some of the things that we can replace uh, we can replace drugs like SSRIs in some patients uh, after the research is done. It seems that we could replace a lot of drugs that need to be taken on a consistent basis, on a daily basis that cause tolerance, that have um, not the best side effect profiles. Once you start to understand the brain and, and microdosing better and these benefits better, it really opens up a, a whole new world of, of medicine and, and research and uh, just evolution i mean human evolution i think we've you know the stoned ape theory is 
is, uh, you know, Terrence McKenna's kind of gold coin of, we wouldn't be here if we weren't, if, you know, that our brains wouldn't have evolved to where we got into if we hadn't been eating mushrooms from the very start, you know? And so it's kind of like, in a way, it kind of echoes that sentiment. These medicines and these plants that are not here on accident, it's not like they accidentally have this effect on us. You know, I don't believe that at least. But that's some of the research I look forward to to seeing it evolve and expand is how is this affecting our brains? How much of the mystical is responsible for um, what you carry with you after the experience? And when the mystical is not so prevalent, because you're microdosing, uh, then where are all these other benefits coming from on a molecular and a neuropharmacological level? Yeah, yeah. Okay, there's a lot that I want to touch on there. But I think, I think it's a really important point that you make about making sure that we understand that different compounds will have different effects, especially when given in different doses. So like going back to my earlier question of could you potentially substitute microdosing for uh, one of these full-blown psychological experiences and um, mm -hmm. I think you can probably say that right now they have different effects and mm -hmm. people take them for different reasons and when you also touched on the fact that um, it's like Silicon Valley that is bringing a lot this trend into the mainstream mm -hmm. mainly because of like the productivity and the creativity that microdosing can help people with I think that's playing into you know a much bigger trend right now just psychedelics becoming more mainstream and the renaissance that's taking place. Do you think that the tech scene and people from those communities adopting the microdosing trend is like pushing this forward in the right direction? Yeah, I think it is. I think that it's cool that that's the perspective and how it came to light because of so much stigma around um, psychedelic drugs and, and psychedelic culture to have the six or seven figure guy in a suit that works in Silicon Valley be the one advocating for it um, probably did more good than it did harm um, because people were more likely to listen to him than they were the hippie. Barring the fact that the hippie might have been way happier, you know, and living a more fulfilling life, just talking about it on a very superficial um, level of perception. Uh, yeah, I think for the purposes of microdosing, I probably came to light and rose to popularity the way it should have. And now it's our responsibility as scientists, since it's now become prevalent in society, to do our due diligence and to find out both the dangers and how it could possibly negatively affect us, uh, as well as all the positive effects that are, are coming from it. And there are a lot of echo chambers when it comes to anything in life, but microdosing is definitely talked about in a very positive light for the most part. The only way for us to really have a definitive and objective idea of how these work in the brain and what their benefits are and the disadvantages are is to take it into the lab, do placebo controlled, double blind, clinically randomized trials because those are the gold standard of evidence and science. And then go from there. And uh, the cool thing is it seems that a lot of these psychedelics in their larger doses are very safe. And so it follows that in 
substantially smaller subperceptive doses, they would be safe as well. Especially compared to to some other things that are, we talk about things about like for focus and energy. I mean, it goes from coffee, which is an caffeine's an incredibly abused stimulant. It works pretty well, uh, all the way up to dexedrin, Adderall, and Ritalin, which is being given out to kids. You know, I think it brings up. It brings up a lot of opportunity to do things differently and change the paradigm by which we use medication in general. Uh, microdosing can have the benefit of helping someone address something that might not be as heavy as PTSD, but still something chronic, you know, so something that is inhibiting them from living the best quality of life that they can. And talking about there being no silver bullet, it's good because nothing does it for you, but it gives you the opportunity. It's just a catalyst. I think that's the way a lot of people look at these medicines, you know. Um, it, it allows you to jumpstart and propel yourself into a place of change because that place is not comfortable. Change just by definition doesn't happen in a comfortable place. And I don't look at psychedelics as a comfortable drug, you know. Um, there are drugs out there that make you feel really comfortable. And, and I, I can tell you that they won't help you change and become a better person uh, the longer you're in that state of complete blissful comfort. Um, but when you're ready to do that work, and that's the way, you know, at ayahuasca ceremonies and stuff like it's talked about, you know, you're going in there with an intention to do some work. Microdosing allows you to bring that into the daily fold, you know, into the fold in your daily life. That's, I, I think that's where we are right now. And so I do think the whole Silicon Valley propulsion of microdosing into the mainstream media has been more positive than negative. Yeah, absolutely. And just like on that note of, there are a couple of things I want to remember mm -hmm. to say here, but the first is in response to your comment about how psychedelics can often be very, very uncomfortable and it's mm -hmm. about the long term game. The best kind of analogy that I ever heard of using psychedelics for, the, for these kinds of results is that it's literally the opposite of other kinds of recreational drugs and, and mm -hmm. alcohol that people have a good time. I mean, right. like they're very comfortable you said in the meanwhile and you have a great time but then afterwards that's like when the negative effects are incurred it's like right. with plant medicines like ayahuasca it's literally the opposite in the case that mm -hmm. it can be extremely uncomfortable whilst you're actually under their effect but then afterwards it literally feels like the opposite of a hangover or the opposite of a come down like after yeah. some of these medicines it just feels like everything is you know it's not necessarily like you're entirely transformed. It's like you said, you have to put the work in to make those positive changes. But I think just general feelings of well-being after taking psychedelics are pretty widespread. Absolutely. And feelings of closeness to, uh, okay, something I, I had to mention in this podcast, because um, I think, again, it was a guy that started MAPS that used this analogy. The way psychedelics act in the brain is similar the phenomenon to what happened when Galileo discovered the earth was not the center of the universe. These drugs lower activity in the prefrontal cortex. Now drugs that increase activity in the prefrontal cortex are stimulants, caffeine, amphetamine, methamphetamine. Uh, we need to have increased activity in this part of our brain to focus on certain tasks and get things done. And when we're doing those things, we're doing them for ourselves generally. So 
it's really all about the ego and it's about, oh, I got to get this done for me. And this is just is so important and whatever, whatever. With these drugs, these psychedelic drugs, they reduce activity in the prefrontal cortex and they increase activity in the middles, in, in, the, in the middle area of our brain, like the, the hippocampus and, and um, other areas like that. So what happens when, when the, the effect of that phenomenon is a feeling of connectedness and belongingness of being a part of something bigger than ourselves which is so profound when you think about it because it's like that's what's missing you know like your problems become smaller when you realize that like other people have problems too you know and that we're all in this together and that we're part of something so much bigger so that's why you know you eat some mushrooms maybe you only eat a threshold or a sub-threshold dose and you can't stop looking at how beautiful this flower is well that's because like that flower is there for you to look at and appreciate and take that time to give your prefrontal cortex a rest and feel a part of something bigger than yourself and i think psychedelics both in their glory of the full trip full dose to yeah that of a microdose as well really helps you do that and i think that it's it's that mechanism in, in the brain that allows so much healing and transformation to really take place because we start to feel more connected to one another as humans but also to animals and to plants and everything around us you know and yeah i think that's and that's that's a really cool and remarkable thing about these uh, these compounds is they do act very differently. You know, think about like cocaine and other stimulant drugs. Like people talk a lot. They, it's all about the ego, you know. And and versus yeah, some you know, you, you take enough LSD and or psilocybin, and there's an actual phenomenon called ego death, where people think you're going to commit suicide because you want to give away everything you have. You know, it's the craziest thing because you just you cannot identify with material objects anymore you're like what is this where it's a it's a scary thing sometimes you wake up the next morning and you have no money left or the clothes on your back but it's because you just you feel so powerfully connected to everyone and everything around you and it's it's society and it's media and it's uh beliefs limiting beliefs maybe our parents put in our head it's a bunch of crap that disconnects us from that connection and so I feel like these plants and these medicines kind of give us that opportunity to, to reconnect again. Yeah, absolutely. So what do you think it's going to take for that cultural change to take place? Like, obviously, the more clinical literature that's published on the benefits of microdosing and other psychedelic compounds more generally is going to be the main driver in this mm -hmm. psychedelic renaissance. What other factors do you think are going to be contributing to that and what do you think that i guess the scientific community but also the psychedelic community as well like what what role can they play to yeah to put to push forward this change that we're seeing at the moment right that's a really great question i'm glad you asked and it's a role we all need to play and it's doing things like you're doing right now like raising awareness um you know i started getting into science media and blogging and stuff by first and i still do a lot of writing for the cannabis industry so watching that evolve and seeing how how it's still federally illegal in our time and how that affects the way research is done it speaks a lot to how it's going to affect and how it has affected uh psychedelic research now what's cool is 
there have already been some pretty interesting leaps and bounds with psychedelic medicine and research that have been starting to transpire at a faster rate than cannabis ever was. For example, the FDA has declared uh, psilocybin a breakthrough therapy for depression. That's remarkable. MDMA is already on phase three trials. The thing is, until these drugs are federally legal, and they're not scheduled, at least they're not schedule one, they have to get approval by NIDA, the National Institute for Drug Abuse. And the thing is, this organization only funds studies that explores the negative aspects or the harmful or toxicology profiles of these drugs. Uh, not that, I mean, safety, of course, is of paramount importance, but there's obviously way more here. And, you know, it's, it was through the, the explosion, uh, uh, the social explosion popularity that microdosing started to take on that the Journal of Psychopharmacology, that, or the PLOS I was looking at earlier, started to gather these anecdotal reports and, and put them together in peer-reviewed research, you know, but these are all dated 2019 and we still don't have our first empirical study um, that is revolving around microdosing. So what we need to do is talk more about it. The conversation needs to be more mainstream like it is, and it needs to focus on the fact that like, hey, there are people that are are really fascinated by this or people that are reporting really remarkable changes to their lives. And there's something here, but we need the scientists to get in the labs, to design the experiments, to do the clinical research responsibly. And for that to happen, there needs to be some change on a legislative front. I'm going to go ahead and say that a Republican controlled Congress is not going to let that happen anytime soon. But at the same token, I hope I'm wrong. I mean, uh, it's it seems like every year there's always. I'm 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 just dumbfounded that I'm still waiting on cannabis federal legalization, and it's not just about access. It's about like, think about all the business and all the um, opportunities out there for people to get in there and work with this really beautiful. Um, these really beautiful medicines. So there's a lot of entrepreneurship. There's a lot of healing. There's a lot that still has to take place. Um, but for right now, I think we just need to keep doing things like we're doing right now and, and keep raising that awareness and talking about it from an intellectual standpoint and raising that vibration to be like, hey, look, change is possible. And, and these are just tools to help facilitate that change. Because I can tell you, as someone that I guess I guess call myself a little bit more of a difficult case when it comes to addiction, and I've worked with a lot of psychedelic medicine to try and parse through that, and uh, I have yet to find my magic bullet for that. And I and then there may not be one, you know. But every single time I engage with a medicine like that, it reminds me that like every breath I take, as long as my heart's still beating and I'm still alive, like I still have a chance to change. You know, and, and as a society and as, an, as a planet and as a, as a species, as long as we're still here, we still have the opportunity to change our laws, the way we treat each other, the way we treat the planet, all of that kind of ties into this, you know. So I think the best way to move forward would be to focus on both risks and benefits. That's what future research should focus on of um, using psychedelics in low doses and preclinical and clinical studies, including biological, like heart rate, receptor turnover rate, and occupancy, how it affects things like memory and attention, uh, those different parameters, energy, focus. Once we start getting some 
definitive and objective data and it's not all just uh, anecdotal, then we'll be able to start to make real leaps and bounds uh, as far as the research goes. Yeah, yeah, I think there's a lot of research to be really excited about. And yeah, he's hoping that that's just picked up in the future and, and that, that legalization isn't something that seems as distant as it, as it does right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think it's a really important point that you made about the conversations that are taking place as well as the, the research. Like you said, more like high profile people are engaging in these conversations and, and being very open about their support for the psychedelic research, like Tim Ferriss, for example, and, you know, really yeah. re- respected and renowned authors like Michael Pollan. I thought his book was incredible. Mm-hmm. So just the fact that he's kind of taken all of these substances i think that's gonna hit home for a lot of people that had never even really thought about them before but had just had that preconception of what they were so yeah it's really important that we keep this conversation going and like the the final points that you made about how psychedelics are just generally so important in order for us to have this kind of collective consciousness and 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 the feelings of connectedness i wonder if coming out of this COVID-19 crisis that we're in the depths of right now, if people will experience long-term changes in their attitudes and just in the way that they see the world, like now that we've had so much put into such a drastic perspective to us, like, do you think this is going to potentially have an effect on like the, the wider collective consciousness of, of people as we come out of it? You know, it's a really interesting question. My approach to this whole COVID thing I don't know if I've taken the right approach to it. Let's put it this way. I wore a face mask for the first time today because I had to to walk into a grocery store to buy something because they changed the rules to where you had to do it. In one way, it's kind of been like out of sight, out of mind. But in another way, it's like you can't ignore it, you know. And it's like the whole social distancing and and the fact that we're trying to keep people away from each other for the sake of our health, which I completely understand as a biologist and a scientist, and I think that's what it takes for us to get out of this, we should do that. But yeah, I mean, remembering that there might be a period of time after this where we need to reconnect and focus on doing the opposite of, of what we've done, you know, try to undo some of that uh, distance, you know, because like, that's what makes us, we're social creatures. That's just who we are. If, if we were meant to get through all of life all by ourselves, I think it would be more obvious in some ways. I don't know. One of the things I tell people is like, for example, like massage therapy is like so effective for pain and, and just making you feel better. And there's no way to really do that without another human being, you know? So it's like, we're kind of meant to, in me, in, in my funny way of looking at it, is like kind of, we're meant to, to live this life together. You know what, it's kind of like an ayahuasca ceremony. Until the very end when the space is open, you don't talk to anyone. It's all in silence. But somehow you still leave that voyage, like closer with everyone that's in that room than you were when you walked into that room with them. And I think that speaks volumes about what this med- what this type of medicine does and what it has to offer people is this chance of getting closer and reconnecting with our, our human spirit. And that doesn't necessarily have to really even mean, uh, I mean, I'm pretty sure the six feet of space between everyone, uh, maybe not the Temescal, but for sure in the temple, when Madrika and Ayahuasca, you could, uh, you could do social distancing and still make a ceremony work, I think.
uh, if you clean up the cup or use different cups. But anyways, you get my point, uh, is that it allows us to, to connect on a more energetic and at a real level. And for the people that subscribe to energetic bodies and us being more than just the physical sum of our parts, uh, then I think psychedelics hold great value. And indeed, they, they may play a very critical role after this pandemic is no longer a pandemic. Yeah, I have to say, I love that analogy of comparing COVID-19 to an ayahuasca ceremony. <laughs> it's, it's actually so accurate. It's very uncomfortable. It's very solitary. It can at times feel very isolated. But when you come out of it, you feel more connected than ever. And I feel like just the nature of humanity in, in, in general is to is to pull together and be more connected and, and more empathetic when times are hard. So yeah, let's hope that that is the case. I mean, who knows how long we're going to be in it. I guess that mm -hmm. both of us are probably kind of better placed here in Latin America rather than in some of the, the bigger hotspots like the US and the UK. But yeah, I think, I think that's a good place to end the podcast. If people want to get in touch with you on social media or your website, where would they be able to find you? Yeah, that's a great question. I'm in the process of still consolidating. I have a lot of my different articles kind of spread out across different websites for my clients. Um, but my website is Biolitics. Biolitics is biology, politics, biolitics. So B-I-O-L-I-T-I-C-S dot O-R-G. Um, Biolitics.org. And so that we touch on anything that where science and ethics kind of uh, intertwine or wherever that juncture is. So kind of controversial things we started off with medical cannabis and that kind of helped uh, me dive into that the world of like freelance media scientific media creation um on twitter i am crispy cast nine at crispy cast nine um that's a play on words of uh the newest uh gene editing tool and like like revolutionary invention in biology uh, called CRISPR-Cas9. Uh, and on Facebook, I'm Gaurav Groovy Dubey. It's not my middle name, but it works for Facebook. Uh, and there's an article, one in particular, I'm not sure I sent it your way. Uh, I will after this podcast. I recommend intelligencespeculation.com and as a blog called The Psychedelic Renaissance is Back Again, and it could revolutionize how we treat mental health. Uh, is published on December third, twenty nineteen, and it talks a lot about it talks a lot about where we're at currently with uh, psychedelic medicine, where its applications are in mental health, and what we have to look forward to. So I think it would be a great supplement to this conversation, and uh, I look forward to speaking with you again soon. This was such a such a pleasure. I'm really grateful and honored that you would you know have me on your show, and I look forward to listening to the whole series when it comes out. Thank you so much. No, thank you so much for coming on. It was a really great conversation. It really was. Thank you so much, Magdalena. Okay, speak soon. Bye. Bye. Once again, thank you to our sponsor, Publicize. Visit their website if you want to find out more about their PR for growth packages, their free resources, or even schedule a call. And for a limited time only, exclusive to Brains Bike Back listeners, you can receive an SEO assessment as part of your package for any tier of service at no extra charge with this special promotion. To find out more, visit publicize.co slash BBB. That's it for today. Thanks so much for listening. If you're interested in listening to more Brains Bite Back podcasts, head to sociable.co or follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
We love hearing what you thought of the show, so don't hesitate to reach out on Twitter at, at The Sociable. I really hope you enjoyed today's episode and stay tuned for the rest of the mini series where we'll dive deep into the power of plant medicines, ayahuasca, and psilocybin mushrooms. Thank you.